Section 5 of The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 11, August 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Annie Mars. The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 11, August 1896, Section 5 Wet Horses by Alice McGowan As I walked down the street of this little panhandle town, built right where we boys used to chase Mustang and hunt buffalo, I saw something that carried me back on the trail further than my mind ever likes to go. It was just a rough cage of wire netting, about five feet high, sitting out in front of the cowboy's retreat with two big mountain eagles in it. I set my palm against the thing and leaned down and looked in at them. They must have been kept there a good while, I thought, and were used to the curiosity of their inferiors, for they didn't notice me at all. They sat there in the degradation of captivity. Their eyes that used to look the sun square in the face were like lead, their big wings that were made to carry them a quarter of a mile at a stroke in the clean air of heaven struck only half-spread against both sides of the cage at once as the eagles flopped awkwardly from one perch to another. I'm not soft-hearted. I guess likely I was as much so by nature as most people, but I've had a good deal to toughen me. The cattle business, in all its details, including some occasional wholesale starving and freezing in bitter winters, the necessary cruelties of the trail, branding and shipping, the life in general on a wild frontier, I think has a tendency to stiffen up over tender sensibilities. But there was a reason why these eagles, sitting dull and hopeless in their low cramped prison with no prospect of freedom ahead, got uncommonly close to me. I went in, and had a drink with the man that keeps the place, and found him a pretty decent sort of chap. He told me how he came to get the eagles of the fellow that trapped them, and that he'd had them nearly a year. I had that notion he took them on a bar bill and was sort of tired of them, for I got him to sell them to me for a hundred dollars. Then I took them out to one side, where a lot of fools wouldn't be shooting at them and interfering with me, and turned them loose. The saloon man and a good share of the population took distant observations of me, wondering, I reckon, what sort of pious crank had struck the town. When the cage was lifted off them, the eagles stood a minute or so, turning their heads about, lifting and trying their wings. Then they rose heavily, side by side, right up till they looked like swallows, then sailed off straight as arrows as though they had seen the snowy tops of the Rockies four hundred miles to the northwest. Why did I throw away a hundred dollars to turn a couple of miserable, worthless birds loose out of a cage like a Sunday school teacher? I love a match, a square stand-up game, even to the finish. I would any time ride far and play big money to be in at a bloody bullfight, but I always hated to see a thing that's brave and wild and savage in its nature and captivity. I'd break a trap any day to let a rattlesnake out, even if I shot it the next minute. 
but it was more than this feeling that was at the bottom of my little deal in livestock of the upper air. It was the remembrance of that experience of mine in old Mexico along the later part of the seventies. I hate to be made to remember that time. Something in me flinches at it, like a pony that's been struck in the face flinches at a raised hand. It was, well, like the judgment bar, and the big book, and the graves giving up their dead, and the secrets of all hearts being uncovered. My partner and I went down to old Mexico in 75. I was 25, and weighed a year or so younger. We both had a little money, about a thousand dollars apiece that we'd made from trail work or droving and various quiet ways such as a little side business in branding with an end gate rod or anything that came handy. And Captain Cameron, an old partner of Wade's who was down in Mexico getting rich hand over fist, sent him word that there was big money to be made there in wet horses. I've heard wet horses described as stock smuggled across from old Mexico into Texas, and having just swam the Rio Grande, and again as stolen horses brought and offered for sale while wet with the sweat of a night's chase. Anyhow, wet horses are understood to be the sort that owe some government a duty, or that have got mixed up in their own minds as to their proper owners, and the horses in which we dealt were very damp indeed. Cap took us to a magnificent old don, who was high up in the Mexican army and had the buying of the horses for the cavalry. We had an interview. It was a wonderful interview. There was port wine, the finest I ever tasted, and not a word said on either side that the whole government wouldn't have been welcome to hear. But for all the ceremony and Spanish style, the don gave us the points. When we left, the understanding was clear as if we had bargained like tender-foot horse traders. We were to bring him anything in the shape of horses, procured wherever and however suited us, receive a rattling price and no questions asked. The Senor Don got his take-off out of the price, of course, but he was a gentleman and left us still the kind of profit that would have made millionaires out of us in a pair of years if everything had gone right. We got the horses mostly away up in the mountains of southern Coahuila for about one-third of their value, gathered up over a wide district as convenience might serve the gentlemen who furnished them to us. They were naturally of all sorts, ranging from somebody's well-bred saddler down to the meanest little runts and scrubs. But for the most part, they were poor stuff. They were stolen, every hoof of them. But that was not our business. We did not even know those who actually did the work. It was done by regular gangs of horse thieves, and we bought direct of the leaders. We always went after the horses heavily armed, and had six or eight Mexican drivers also armed to take them back. We carried the money with which we paid for them in gold, and in that nest of robbers and cutthroats where a man's life would be stamped out of him in a minute by one of those sneaking assassins for the price of a drink of pelk. It was business lively enough to satisfy even Wade and me, who had been esteemed tolerably fly cowboys as cowboys went back in West Texas and the panhandle in the 70s. About nine o'clock, one brilliant moonlight night, we were coming along a narrow mountain pass in Zacatecas. Captain Cameron was ahead with a little bunch of horses and four drivers. 
Wade and I were riding at the rear of our bunch, for every cent we had in the world was in bags of coin on a little grey mule just in front of us. We had brought it all to buy a large drove which we had got word would be ready for us, but there was a failure somewhere, and we were going back with only forty horses. It looked queer. Cap and Wade and I were on the watch, riding with hands on our pistols and all our arms ready. We came to a place where the road just ahead made a dip, turned a little to one side and ran through a black shadow cast down by a bunch of nopals on the height above. Cap rode forward and his voice came back to us out of this shadow and dip in a fearful yell and a string of curses. Then there were pistol shots and more yells. They say it takes nine tailors to make a man, but only the Lord who created them knows how many miserable greasers it takes. All the Mexican drivers in both Cap's outfit and ours sneaked away like scared coyotes. They were bribed or won over, I suppose, but they would have done the same anyhow, likely. Wade and I and one white boy we had went ahead with cocked pistols, and there in the pass, partly in the moonlight, as white as day, partly in the black shadow, we had a desperate hand-to-hand fight. That little dark hollow was full of long Mexican knives, There was no runaway for us, and the others who had maybe not expected such resistance were bound now that they were in for it, to have the little grey mule and his heavy coin bags. When it was done, Cap lay stretched out dead and ghastly, his face scowling and furious, covered with bloody knife wounds, his clothing torn almost off him by clutching hands and wayside cactus thorns. The Texas boy was dead, not far in the shadow. Wade lay unconscious and bleeding from three wounds, any one of which would have taken him to his last account in 24 hours. I had a pistol shot wound in my head that injured the skull but did not break through it, and in my shoulder was a horrible gaping hole of a bayonet thrust. I never knew how many of the other fellows we had done for, but I'm sure we didn't owe them anything. I fainted from loss of blood, and the next thing I knew, I found Wade and myself in a dirty little doby hut, with our wounds dressed in a sort of way, and some water and grub beside me. I could hear a sentry shuffling up and down at the front, and one at the back of the house. The roof was partly gone, and I judged by the moonlight that it was about one o'clock. Wade lay and died with his head on my knees. The moonlight through the broken roof poured over his face, and at first he looked up and talked to it like a baby, and after a while he got wild and broke out all at once. Great God, boys, it's awful, it's awful, it's hell. I never thought nothing much about it, never till now, to live like this year after year. I reckon God made us, we're put here somehow. And it seems to me we's meant to be rather good. We must have been, for look at some men, not preachers neither. Clean, honest, always a payin' every cent they owe. Never a swearin' to mount to nothin', nor puttin' of their brands onto nothin'. It ain't their own. No more thinkin' or gettin' drunk, and if they uh, wasn't so such a thing. And they look at shootin' and knifin' and killin' of a fella a man as awful, awful, couldn't do it no how. 
Not angels, you know, not angels. I've always felt like an angel here in this world to be mostly uninteresting, monotonous, chump to chum with coarse well-meaning, but no savvy. But I know there's such a man as them. I've known folks at Notum. Plantation purpose was most that away. And then think of us, of our ways and our lives. I've got drunk always. I've lied and swore and gambled and fleeced fellows out of the money they'd earn. Why, just commonly. Why, when I wasn't nothing hardly but a kid and slavin' and me was a worker. That bar wide range. We mavericked and burnt out brands right along. I went away up the trail to Old Fort Dodge. So poor little Sally Ellis couldn't get to me with her crying and begging me to marry her. Oh, Lord, she's worse than even I am now. Am I a-going somewhere? I'll always see her poor little face. T'was so pretty when I first seed it. And hear her crying. Oh, Wade, please, Wade. Oh, I ain't got no mother, Wade. And I'm so young. Oh, if you don't, Wade, what'll I do? What'll I do? Dear Lord, dear kind, pitying God, sweet, merciful, kind-hearted Jesus. Oh, feel sorry for me. Honestly, in a sort of way, I didn't know no better. I thought t'was smart. Don't count it all in bagging me. Not at all. For as sure as I'm a-laying here to die, I sort of didn't know no better. I thought t'was smart to seem to me these fellas I was speaking of was so poor sort of man and Mr. Heap. And t'was smart to, oh God, don't. He raised one hand, or tried to, like a little child if you go to strike it, and died with that last word in motion. I'll tell you, it was the worst thing I ever had to take. It was bad enough before, wounded, stiff, weak with pain and bleeding, stuck like a rat in that miserable hole of a Mexican prison, with every hope of being shot as soon as I could stand up, and Wade lying there in that awful white moonlight dying. This was enough. But when he weakened so at the last, and I couldn't get him to know me, nor quiet him anyhow, when he would run on and on and on with that string of terrible talk about things that a well man, free and among his own people, wouldn't want to have called up to him. It seemed to me as if my time had come to answer up to something that had been keeping a tally on me. There were strange feelings. I shook all over, and I never was counted a coward. I wished I didn't know that. I was sick sick of it all but to be dead well being dead didn't seem to me like it sometimes had a good way to end it and be done if i could go back and be a child and try it all over again but that seemed a mighty long uncertain way i straightened wade out in the deep shadow where the moon couldn't get at that look on his face and drank every drop out of my little pocket flask and after a while I got to sleep. Well, I laid in that cursed jail eleven months, eleven long, dragging, almost hopeless months, 
without a word of English to hear or read, with nothing to do but eat and sleep and think, and I'm not a man that has any liking for that last amusement. I always hated worse to be hindered than to be hungry. I ran away from home and my father's authority when I was fourteen, and since that time, whether things were bad or good with me, at least there was somebody who could say to me, you shall, or you shan't, or lay a straw across the path I pleased to take. I had lived in the kind of country and lived the sort of life calculated to make this almost solitary confinement torture. I used to lie all night and dream of the plains of West Texas, air, light, distance, room for whole nations of people, and wake to find myself, me that used to have it all for mine, shut in four adobe walls. I used to own a mount of eight ponies, the best in the whole cattle country. I remembered chasing mustang, running antelope and wolves and hunting buffalo on them, upon those plains where it looked as if you could ride from daybreak till dark and from horizon to horizon without a break or barrier. And here my limbs were shriveling in disuse. I could go fifteen feet against a dead wall and fifteen feet back against another and my blood crawled through my veins where it used to leap and laugh. It was torment at first, torture, hell. Then it was gnawing, cankering, mouldering misery. It was in the summer of 76, in the struggle for God and liberty between Lerdo and Diaz that this happened. It was a straggling bunch of thievish guerrillas called themselves Lerdo's men, that had taken us, our horses, and our money. I never could tell why they didn't shoot me. To save my board bill and the trouble of guarding me, they had several spells of debating it, and it was always put off for some reason. There were times when I'd have been glad enough to have them do it. I hadn't a cent to bribe with, nor any friend who might be reached, and yet, generally, they stayed by me, a sort of hope that I would get out of it after all. And I did. I was waked one morning from my dreams of liberty by the sounds of rapid firing. There was a big fight going on outside for sure, at the noise and the thought that I couldn't get out or make myself heard or raise a finger anyhow. I went perfectly crazy, as men long solitarily confined will. I flung myself on the door, cursing, crying, bloodying my fists upon it trying to beat it down. Suddenly, in the midst of the uproar, I recognized that someone outside was battering in the door, and as it toppled forward and the gun barrels appeared over it, I tore open the bosom of my shirt and yelled, Shoot here, you dogs and cowards, and shoot straight! Oh, I was clean crazy. It was a troop of Mexican cavalry, which had come up to clean out my captors, who had tried to make a war play at a government mule train. If it had been a squad of archangels, they couldn't have looked any handsomer to me. There was my old friend, the Senor Don, who bought horses for the cavalry. When he saw me, he almost shed tears, and when I told him how long I had been there, where Wade and Cap and the others were, he sent out and ordered the rest of the prisoners shot before breakfast. 
He was ready to stake me to a new start in wet horses, but I'd had enough. He'd said in the kindness of his heart and that beautiful Spanish of his that I was his child, his cruelly injured child. He was a good old boy under all his stuffed silver-plated uniform and his Spanish-spread eagle. I took the money he gave me and came as straight to the plains as those eagles flew to the Rockies this morning. Didn't I know how they felt when I found them? I guess I did. And I knew what they felt when they spread out their great wings in mile-high air, took their bearings and flew towards the crags of their old buccaneering grounds once more to rear their savage young or fight and scream and plunder in freedom. End of section number five. Recording by Annie Mars. End of The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 11, August 1896.